I don't know. Well, why doesn't he take us back? I'm not sure that he can. I hate it as much as you. I'm just as afraid. But what can we do? Well, we could at least stay near the ship. <laughs> the ship's no good without him. Well, I suppose we'd better make sure he doesn't fall down and break a leg. Don't you ever think he deserves something to happen to him? Yes. Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're working our way through Doctor Who from the beginning to figure out what's worth watching for a modern audience. I'm your host, the Doctor Who obsessive who has wasted my life. I mean, been watching the show for decades, so I can no longer tell what's good and what's not. And Guy is here representing normal human beings who still have taste and standards. Hello, Guy. Hello. <laughs> I hope you're up to uh, representing taste and standards. Well, I, uh, I I don't remember that being in the uh, description. But I <laughs> <laughs> give a little context for the story today, which is a a really important one, and and really the first story that the general public sort of cares about with Doctor Who, and that is the Daleks. So, guy, even though you've never seen Doctor Who before, we started this. Mm-hmm. What was your impression of the Daleks before you watched this story? Before watching the story, I'd say I uh, thought the Daleks seemed sort of cheesy. <laughs> they were well-known enough. You know, you showed me a picture of one, I'd say, oh, that's a Dalek. Although I think I would have pronounced it Dalek oh. <laughs> because I had only read it. But the, the, before, I thought they were kind of cheesy. And no, I think they're they're a little more sinister, especially since they're actual mutated beings inside of the shells which i hadn't realized before they're they're pretty good it'll be fun when they next pop up which i know they do eventually yeah they they weren't supposed to this was a one-off story but uh well we'll we'll get to that sydney newman was the head of programming at the bbc and he conceived of the avengers tv show which was a huge worldwide hit and that set his reputation at the bbc And then he came up with the concept for Doctor Who. One of his most strongly held requirements from the beginning was that there should be absolutely no BEMs, which is bug-eyed monsters, right? He hated that aspect of, like, 60s science fiction. You know, if you went and read the pulps, the covers all had these bug-eyed monsters on them. He wanted none of them in Doctor Who. Oh, yeah. His general rule, one of the things that was really good about him was... Once he handed a show off to a producer, he tried to be hands-off and let the producer do what they were going to do. And so Verity Lambert is this, like, 24-year-old woman, and he hands the show off to her. And when she came to him with the Dalek story, he was pissed. This was Bug-Eyed Monsters. And she knew he was not going to like it. And so she came up with a whole like, well, they're not really bug-eyed monsters. Like you say, they're sort of these creatures that had to mutate, et cetera. Mm. To his credit, he let her go forward, but he was very, very unhappy. Mm. And he did not want this story to be done. One of the other credits to him as, as, you know, passionate as he was about this was once the show was successful and this is Dr. Who was probably on the road to cancellation After the second episode of the story where the Daleks are shown, it instantly became a huge hit in the UK. 
uh, kids all over London were spending their recess time being Daleks. It just, they loved it. They totally related mm-hmm. to this. They loved it. And the show had a guaranteed future. Sidney Newman, for all of his passionate beliefs about how it should be done, said, you know what? Verity Lambert knows what she's doing. I don't. I'm going to stay hands off. <laughs> so pretty, I think that's pretty admirable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> A few tidbits about the filming of these episodes. The recording of the first couple of episodes was very problematic, uh, not unlike uh, recording the first couple episodes of a certain podcast. The first episode had to be entirely redone because, not because there was any problem with the episode itself, the TV crew chatter, you know, that usually is going through headphones, somehow was bleeding over into the soundtrack. And they couldn't get rid of it. Mm. Again, not unlike certain podcast issues you have to deal with. <laughs> and so they had to refilm the entire episode. Oh, wow. And then the second episode was in the middle of being recorded. Remember, these were kind of, you know, more or less live, and then they would take some breaks and have dinner, et cetera. Mm. And at dinner, they found out that JFK had been assassinated. Hmm. And they had no choice but to keep going. They're in the middle of recording this episode. They have to finish it. So the first couple episodes, the actors may not have been at their best all the time. Yeah. And then the last two episodes, I don't know that I detect this. I'd be curious what you think. By the time they were filming the last two episodes, the first episodes had come out and the actors now knew that the show was a hit. Hmm. And there are people who say that you can tell that the actors are more enthusiastic in the last couple episodes. Yeah, yeah, it could be. could be. So there are um, seven episodes. It's one of the long stories they used to have in the beginning. And the first is The Dead Planet. Yeah. Okay, The Dead Planet. We open up where we ended after the caveman story last time where they have landed somewhere and they look at the radiation meter and it looks good and they all go away to uh, clean up and get dressed. And while they're doing that, the radiation meter goes into the danger zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, I actually went back and looked up on YouTube a clip of the uh, China syndrome, the part of it where the meter ends up being not showing the right of result hey jack what look at this water level indicator water level's low this says it's high jesus christ and it was good that's a that's a fun movie anyway (laughs) that's i I wanted to get that in there just for comparison Yeah, and I assume China Syndrome would have been uh, after this, so maybe yeah, they were stealing 78. the Daleks. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. 78. When they do go outside, it's a really creepy landscape with petrified trees. I, I, for their budget, I thought they did a surprisingly good job at, at this. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a good effect to have the, uh, to have the petrified trees have petrified vines wrapped around them. It was, uh, added a little ambiance or something. They're kind of fascinated by this petrified forest, but Barbara and Ian really want to get back to their home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In the caveman story, you theorize that Ian was finally willing to say the doctor was their leader 
because the doctor was the only one who could operate the ship. So maybe he was really, you know, being self-interested in, in saying the doctor was the leader. Mm -hmm. They have a conversation here that I think kind of confirmed your theory was both Barbara and Ian agree that they need to keep an eye on the doctor and keep him from getting hurt so they don't get stranded. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Is this uh, somewhere around the part of the show where uh, uh, Ian just smashes the flower? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's, yeah, Susan finds this really pretty kind of delicate flower. looks like it's made out of glass or something. And Barbara ends up screaming, and Ian just crushes it and puts it back in Susan's hand. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out that Barbara has been startled by a metal lizard. For my for my money, that's uh, one one of the one of the more impressive effects we've seen on the show so far. It's really a, a spooky looking little lizard thing. Yeah, and it turns out it's not alive. They're upset by it. The doctor is fascinated and starts making assumptions about how this world has evolved based on this. But it's at this point where Ian and Barbara realize, yeah, this is definitely not Earth because <laughs> there are no metal lizards on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> and Barbara is really particularly upset because she feels like we're never going to get back. And Ian and Barbara are alone, and Ian asks Barbara to really believe that they're going to get back someday. Susan spots a city in the distance, uh, and they all run to look at this. What did you think of this scene and, and this model they used for the city? Yeah, I think overall it's pretty good. Although having seen it again, yeah, I went back and rewatched some of the episodes I had watched before. The, the city is mostly a good effect, but it looks like some of the buildings look like serving trays or upside-down bowls. <laughs> And uh, I didn't spot that the first time around, but uh, still a good effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and also the they do a split screen thing where they're looking out over the city, and that was surprisingly well done. And there'll be some effects later on, a couple of them that are really well done. As soon as he sees it, the doctor says he intends to investigate this city. He just has to find out what this is all about. Yeah, Ian says he can't let him go. Or he can't let him go alone because he reminds him that Doctor is the only one who knows how to fly the ship. <laughs> the Doctor kind of grumbles about this. He doesn't like being restricted. They head back to the TARDIS, and on the way, Susan gets distracted. While she's looking at something, somebody touches her on the shoulder, and she freaks out. Yeah. One of our many Susan freaking out <laughs> moments. Here's one where, you know, uh, disappointed in the doctor. I mean, this is his granddaughter, and they live a long time. They've probably been together a long time. And he refuses to believe her and tries to explain to her how it's impossible that anyone touched her. Yeah. <laughs> I'm finding more and more that the doctor uh, makes a lot of decisions that don't seem very good. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I think in his favor, though, they're in the TARDIS. He goes to Barbara and he says, look, I don't know what to say to her. Can you kind of as a as a woman who can maybe relate to her better, can you go and talk to her? So at least he understands some of his limitations. Yeah. Here. Yeah. Barbara goes and talks to her and they have a good heart to heart talk. But 
Unfortunately, again, I, I think this is one of those moments that shows where her character is going. Because as we talked about before, the actress Carolyn Ford took this role and came onto the show because she was told it was going to be like the Avengers and she was going to be a strong, you know, woman with action and in control. And after the very first episode, she immediately becomes a teenager. And here's a case where even though theoretically Susan has been through time and space and is, is probably much older than Ian and Barbara, Barbara is now the, you know, motherly figure counseling her. And Susan is the teenager who, who doesn't know how things work. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just looked this up last night. Carol Ann Ford was 23 when she played the 15 year old girl. Oh, <laughs> right. Right. Good job. Yeah, I don't think she ever reads as 15. <laughs> After this, they get hungry. We have a really extended scene with a food machine. <laughs> what did you think about, uh, you know, this food machine? They uh, enter numbers into the machine and it pops out these little bars that will represent whatever meal you're interested in. Yeah, that's a, I'd like to have one. <laughs> and it makes bacon and eggs, so it's good for a low-carb diet, too. <laughs> right, so Ian immediately wants an, a, a bacon and eggs breakfast, and they pop in the numbers, and he's he's quite impressed at the result. You know, each each bite gives him a different flavor. And I actually had a similar experience in London, oddly enough. Uh, there's a village outside of London where there's a, a famous restaurant called the Fat Duck. And the concept of this meal was that each course was taking you through the chef's life. And the first course was they brought out cereal boxes, little cereal boxes, and gave it to you. And you poured the cereal into a bowl and you poured what was presumably milk onto it. And then you ate it. And when you ate it, instead of tasting like cereal, it was, in fact, a bacon and eggs breakfast. Uh -huh. So I don't know, maybe in his childhood, he had been watching Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely uh, give that uh, breakfast a try. So while they're eating, they hear something tapping on the TARDIS. They don't know what's going on. Susan now feels vindicated because if someone is tapping on the TARDIS door, then that means there was someone who could have touched her shoulder. Barbara and Ian and Susan want to leave immediately. Let's just get out of here in the TARDIS. Doctor wants to stay because he wants to see the city. He agrees to leave, though. Goes to the console. <laughs> then in, I don't know, the most non-subtle subterfuge ever, he leans down, opens a panel, and takes out an item from the panel. <laughs> then tries to take off and the TARDIS fails to take off. And he then says, oh, the fluid link is, is out of mercury. That's why we can't take off. <laughs> so he lies about this and says, and, and then Ian, I think he kind of half knows he's probably lying because Ian realizes, oh, if we go to the city, we can probably find some mercury. <laughs> and the doctor is like, yep. I guess we got to go to the city. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was real uh, unsubtle, and I think uh, I, on rewatching it, I still have the uh, impression that I did before that that Ian was about to call him out on it, 
and just <laughs> sort of held back. But that's that's just my interpretation. Right, right. Well, he doesn't know how the TARDIS works, so he probably can't be a hundred percent confident that the doctor's lying, oh, even sure. if he thinks he might be right. right. They leave the TARDIS to go to the city, and right outside, they find a metal box, kind of like a pencil box. Mm -hmm. And we have this interesting thing, which I think ties into the timing of this, right? The Doctor, this is 1963. It was being filmed a couple of decades after World War II. Unlike the U.S., where we sent people to World War II, we didn't have it come to us. And so Britain had all these unexploded bombs and everything everywhere. And they were used to the idea of, of coming across something like this. So the very first thing that Barbara says is, be careful, it might go off. So mm -hmm. they see a little metal box, they immediately assume it's a bomb. And I, I just think that's interesting because if this were being done in the U.S., if this same show at that time, that would not have been the assumption of the characters. Mm -hmm. For all of their experience with this, I'm not so sure about how they deal with it because <laughs> Ian just leans down, puts a hand over his face. They're all standing right next to him, and he uses a stick to open the box. So if this were a bomb, <laughs> yeah, he'd be, they would now all be dead. Yeah. <laughs> but it turned out it wasn't a bomb, so all was well. <laughs> yeah. And then all of a sudden, uh, I guess we don't, I, I don't even think we see this. We find out later they put the, they don't know what to do with the box. They don't know what it is. You know, they, they find some vials inside. They're not sure what they are. So they put the box in the TARDIS and then they go to the city. So we jump right to the city. And actually I'm kind of thankful that they didn't give us yet another trudge through the forest yeah. scene because we've had enough of this. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they're not shy about throwing in some filler here and there. <laughs> <laughs> Once they get to the city, these metal buildings, these metal doors, there are several doors, and Ian has the brilliant idea that the first thing they should do is split up and explore this building. Because, <laughs> you know, the splitting up always leads to good things when you're in mysterious circumstances. <laughs> we get a pretty long sequence of, of watching them go through things, and we're following Barbara, who is alone. Well, what did you think of inside this building with the doors and the corridors and everything? What did you think of this architecture? I actually, I liked the doorways. I thought that was a neat little stylistic touch. But other than that, the architecture is pretty, pretty bare and industrial. Yeah, so it's not really, uh, not a lot of aesthetics there aside from the doorways. <laughs> yeah, and the doorways are these kind of oddly shaped, almost oval uh, I think later we'll kind of realize that they're sort of Dalek-shaped. <laughs> so oh, okay. they have been yeah. designed for the Daleks. Right, because right, they have the sloping front if you look at them from the side. Or, I mean, the, they slope all around, but it's more pronounced in the front. And I think I was more impressed than you. I, I thought for a low-budget sh children's show, they did a pretty good job here. And, and especially when you could see all the way down the corridor and see all of these doorways. Now, what you probably couldn't see on a black-and-white TV at the time was that Half of that was just a drawing in the background, mm -hmm. uh, extending it. But, it, you know, it was pretty effective. Yeah, I, I liked that, too. Although, the, again, that was the doorways. So, you know, <laughs> I thought it was a good, uh, really well done, though. I mean, it doesn't jump out at you as being a, a backdrop. Right. And now for the end of the episode, we get, uh, well, first of all, I'll mention some history here. 
One of the things that Sidney Newman insisted on is that the shows have cliffhangers at the end, like the old serials that kids used to watch, because he realized it's important to have something that is going to bring people back the next week to see what happened. Uh, so he came up with this idea of they should have cliffhangers, and this is a huge part of Doctor Who for decades. So here, the one of the first real cliffhangers is one of the most famous in Doctor Who history, which is Barbara goes into a room, sees something, freaks out, and then we just see what we later find out is kind of the top of a plunger <laughs> coming toward her as she's screaming, and then the show ends. Pretty effective ending. Yeah, I think, uh, especially if you're a kid, you'd want to come back and, and see what that was all about. Oh, yeah. So now we go into the second episode, The Survivors. We're seeing the Doctor, Ian, and Susan, and they go into a room where they find a bunch of machines and instrumentation, and the Doctor looks at these things, and there's printouts going on, and... He concludes from what he's looking at that there is radiation in the air and they've been absorbing it. So they must be slowly getting sick from radiation. And there's this scene has uh, an interesting little exchange in it. They're talking about speculating about the intelligence of whoever might have built these machines. And uh, Ian says, but how do they use their intelligence? What form does it take? <laughs> The doctor says, oh, as if that matters. <laughs> He's really not a uh, <laughs> student of psychology, I guess. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. He also manages uh, to realize right off the bat, and I, I'm not sure this is realistic, but he speculates that this radiation was caused by a neutron bomb. Because he figures, well, the buildings are still standing Therefore, it must have been a neutron bomb because that would destroy vegetation and such. That's why you have a petrified forest. Uh, but you still have the buildings. Yeah. Now the doctor realizes that he has made a mistake by forcing everyone to come to the city, that they really shouldn't have done this, that now they're getting sick from radiation <laughs> and they need to get back to the TARDIS. But they are separated from Barbara. And here we have another in our cavalcade of the doctor making not admirable decisions. <laughs> <laughs> so at this point, the doctor admits that he's lied about the fluid link and that actually they can go back to the TARDIS and it will work. I think this is where he says, I'm afraid I cheated a little on that. <laughs> it's an understatement. <laughs> yes. Right. So Ian says, wait, what about Barbara? And the doctor is immediately willing to throw over the side. I mean, he, he had a moment earlier where he trusted her and asked her to talk to Susan. So theoretically, they have a relationship. But now it's all over, and he's like, wait, you know, well, you can stay and look for Barbara if you want, but Susan and I are going back to the TARDIS. But he had made the mistake when he was telling Ian that he'd lied about the fluid link of handing the fluid link to Ian. So Ian now has it. And Ian blackmails him with it and says, you're not going anywhere because I'm not giving this back to you. Yeah. Until we find Barbara. <laughs> so the doctor gives in and they set out to search for Barbara and they walk into a room. And this is, a, a I would argue, a pretty amazing scene and shot. Um, you know, they, they walk into a room 
they suddenly freak out and the camera pulls back for a reasonable amount of time. And for the very first time in history, you see Daleks and you see a bunch of them and they're surrounding the humans. Mm. You know, that's a, that's a pretty striking image. I don't know. What, what did you think about that? Oh yeah. Yeah. I thought, uh, I thought they were introduced pretty well. And I do, I do think that they are, uh, more impressive than I had thought before actually watching the show. I think, uh, um, yeah, the plungers are still kind of silly, but, uh, <laughs> but overall, overall, the, the design is pretty good, actually. I think. Well, then let's talk about the design a bit and, and where that came from. So Terry Nation is the writer of this story and he writes a number of other stories, usually Dalek stories going forward. He got rich off of the Daleks because he, he created the concept of them. But the thing is, he was kind of a lazy writer and he had, he would have some good ideas, but you know, he, he didn't like to extend himself too much. So he had a very, very basic description of Daleks. It was up to the designer for this sh show, Ray Cusick, to actually implement them. What we see, and I think what made the show famous is really what Ray Cusick came up with. But it was Terry Nation who got the credit and the money going forward. Right? Oh, um, yeah. huh. And I, I think, it, you know, it's fair to say that the person who conceived of, of the idea should get a share of it. But it, it's unfortunate that, you know, they couldn't share that, the results between them. Oh, yeah. Now, speaking of the plunger. So from the description and their initial drawings and everything, the Daleks were going to have a claw because that made sense, right? They could then do things with a claw. Oh, sure. But they couldn't afford it. A claw was expensive. <laughs> They'd have to build them and design them. So at the last minute, what can we do? Let's put a plunger. <laughs> <laughs> and it is the silliest thing, but you know what? It's there to this day. So, <laughs> you know. And you get to see them manipulate things with the plunger now and then. They'll pick up a piece of paper or something like that. Right. And it's a, so, yeah, it's fun. And and you know how they did that is interesting. I did not uh, catch this until I was doing some research for, for our show here. Whenever they would need to pick up something, what they would do is they would just tape a magnet to the plunger so that then they, and they, whatever they had to pick up, they would have the metal so that they could just stick the plunger to it. So if you know that, if you're watching, you'll see there's one Dalek that has a magnet taped to its plunger. Cause that's always the one that picks up things. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, another little tidbit, Ridley Scott was going to be a designer on this episode. Uh huh. And just didn't work out, and so Ray Cusick was, and then Ridley Scott went off and did Alien, so uh, oh, yeah. you know, maybe he had also <laughs> been influenced by Doctor Who. Yeah, maybe uh, that would be interesting to see uh, Ridley Scott design the production for an episode. Uh, I like his <laughs> visual style. He's usually pretty Might have been much that. more disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Last thing I wanted to go over with the Daleks who were talking about them is the performers of them, because with the design, they had like little tricycle things in there. So they had wheels and they could, they could wheel it around. They were amazingly mobile hmm. and the performers had to do a whole lot of stuff. So they had to move it around. They had to move the arm, you know, the, the plunger and the weapon thingy 
And they also, whenever, so the people speaking were off stage doing the, the dialogue, but the person inside the Dalek had to know the dialogue because they would turn on the lights mm-hmm. on the top of it whenever a word was spoken. So you could, so what had happened was, I think the director had said, you know what? When we're doing a shot with a bunch of Daleks, we can't tell which one is talking. And so that's when the designer had the idea of putting two little lights on top of the Dalek and the lights would light up when it was talking. Hmm. These performers had to move this thing around on a little tricycle. They had to move the arms. They had to have the lights going on and off and they had to do it in the right direction and they had to do it at the right time. So they actually couldn't just hire random people. They had to hire actors who were short because they mm-hmm. needed to be short to fit inside the Dalek because the, because they had to, to have the skills to know how to perform in the scene. It was really quite complex and, and impressive hmm. the more you know about it. The next thing we see is that the crew has been reunited with Barbara. They've all been put in a cell. Uh, for some reason, even though, as we'll see, the, the Daleks have not had contact with anyone else for 500 years, but they happen to have a cell available just in case. So they have some discussion, and then the doctor is taken away to meet with the Daleks. And they call him a Thal, which he doesn't know what that is. And there's kind of a whole complex story thing in here that develops in a couple of minutes, which is the Daleks assume these humans are Thals, which are the 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 human-like creatures on this planet. And they see that the crew is suffering from radiation sickness, but the they know that the Thals had radiation drugs. So they figure out, well, the drugs must be running out if you're now suffering from radiation sickness. And when they say that, the doctor realizes that the box with the vials in it that had been left outside the TARDIS must have been radiation drugs. And he tells them, we have some radiation drugs in our ship. The Daleks can't leave the city because we'll find out they are electrified and or they have to run on an electrified surface. And so they cannot leave the city. So the doctor convinces them to let one of the humans go back and get the drugs. The Daleks say, yes, they want this to happen because they want the, you know, the doctor and his friends to be able to take the radiation drugs. What we discover after the fact is, of course, in reality, they want the drugs for themselves and they're going to let the humans die. <laughs> yeah. Sneaky buggers. Yeah, they, they don't seem to be the best. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so they send the doctor back to the crew in the cell to figure out who's going to go back to the TARDIS. And we get uh, one of the first cases of what are called Billy flubs, right? So William Hartnell, uh, I'm not going to call him old because as we talked about before, he was in his mid-50s. But compared to now, physically he was old, right? And he was probably in the Mm -hmm. early stages of of being ill. And he would periodically make some pretty amusing mistakes. And as we said, because they, they couldn't really cut, they just had to go with those. So one of the, this was one of the first ones where he's talking to them about the drugs and he says, it's the anti-radiation gloves. Yeah. He does correct himself. Yeah. <laughs> so earlier I forgot to say that when they had been surrounded by the Daleks and the Daleks wanted them to go to the cell, Ian decided foolishly to run 
he got shot by one of the Daleks with a paralyzing ray mm-hmm. and his legs don't work. Uh, but once the doctor says somebody has to go back and get these drugs, Ian wants to be all manly. He's got to be the one that goes. No one, no one else can go. So he stands up to prove he can do this and immediately falls over. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's worth mentioning the uh, this raid that the Daleks have. Uh, they said another shot from it <clears throat> would have killed him. So you know the first is a stun. Then next time you're you're dead. Right. And some people have pointed out it's also a little odd since the Daleks haven't seen another creature in 500 years that they're all set up to shoot people. (laughs) (laughs) But that's a Dalek, you know. Um, So Susan decides to go. Uh, I'm not sure why Barbara doesn't, but Susan decides to go. And she runs out into the forest. And again, I thought the forest was pretty good. Mm Mm-hmm. This is the beginning of where she uh, runs into the camel-cloaked fella. Yes, I will say before that, though, we do get another one of those famous shots. She is running in place while people smack her with branches, which is just, I don't know, my favorite little thing because it's so silly. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But yes, and then we see somebody in a strange skin in the forest following her. It's a good, it's a good creepy, creepy kind of effect because it's just a... It's just sort of shadowy on the screen. Uh, but you know somebody's silently moving about out there while while she's heading toward the ship. Right, and we we cannot tell what it is. It looks it could be totally a monster. You know, there's no there's no real shape to it. Mm-hmm. Susan reaches the TARDIS, goes inside, finds the metal box with drugs, hugs it to her chest. She's scared to go back out, but she steals herself. And the episode ends with her leaving the TARDIS while lightning is raging outside. So what do you think so far? Uh, I I liked the episode. I think uh, in my final list of you know, thumbs up or thumbs down, I think I'd say this one was skippable, but it does have some fun stuff in it. And uh, one thing I'm not sure that we mentioned was that uh, self-destructing 21-hole lock on the TARDIS. <laughs> And uh, I'm I'm not sure if a lock that self-destructs... I mean, they they don't put them on cars. There must be a reason why not. You're reminding me of why Barbara didn't go back. Uh, So Barbara, I think, does offer to go. And Susan says, you can't because the key to the TARDIS, uh, you can't just stick it in there. As you say, there's like 21 holes and you have to do it exactly right. And if you don't, you know, everything will go wrong. So soon as Susan is the only one who can go back because the doctor himself is too ill. From the radiation. And this is, you know, the way the TARDIS key works changes over time (laughs) based on the needs of the plot, right? right. uh, This 21 (laughs) hole thing uh, goes away pretty quickly. (laughs) The next episode is The Escape. (laughs) And Susan exits the TARDIS with the drug case and immediately outside in a very intimidating fashion is a very blonde, you know, tall human type person wearing that cloak that we saw earlier. She falls to her knees. Uh, she's so intimidated. Yeah. She's really, uh, really disproportionately frightened, I think. But then she's alone in the <laughs> woods. Who knows? I won't hold it against her. 
And he explained he is Aladon, and he was the one who left the drugs for them. And he has come back to make sure they know how to use them. Susan is surprised because the Daleks had said something about the survivors outside all being mutants. And this guy is a, you know, fine looking, chiseled, <laughs> blonde haired <laughs> specimen and not a, not a mutant. <laughs> yeah. And, and clearly I think from the beginning, she seems to be yeah. a little intrigued. <laughs> oh yeah. And actually some, at some point they, uh, they discuss whether or not the Daleks have ever actually seen them since the war. And they, the Daleks may just be assuming that they were. And in fact, Aladon, who is a Thal, is surprised to hear the Daleks have survived. So neither one has seen, neither group has seen each other for 500 years. Yeah. He is smart enough to question why the Daleks want the drugs brought back, and he suggests maybe it's the Daleks who want them for themselves and not for the prisoners. So he immediately hatches a scheme that he's going to give Susan an extra batch of drugs that she can hide. So if the Daleks take the main batch, she'll have the extra batch to give to her friends. An interesting aspect of, of this story that doesn't really carry forward into the future is the Daleks are both very articulate and, and later on they, they don't tend to be so articulate. And also they are smart. They don't get fooled by anything. <laughs> so they are discussing Susan's going out to get the drugs and they immediately say, look, she's probably going to meet some falls. They start to scheme about how maybe they can use her to get falls to come to the city. Then we see Susan back with the prisoners. She's given them the drugs. It's kind of funky, especially for a kid's show. They, they skip whole chunks of the story. So she just kind of very briefly explains that the Daleks had searched her and they had found the second supply of drugs, but for some reason they'd let her keep them. Yeah. And I think what we learn over time is that their feeling is there may be some, they may be able to use these humans, like we said, maybe to get the Thals to come to the city or something. So they're going to go ahead and let them have some of the drugs so that they'll stay alive. Right. We see that the Daleks can hear everything they're saying. And Susan tells the crew the full Thal history of the last 500 years, not realizing that the Daleks are listening in. So the Daleks are getting a lesson in what's been going on outside the city. The humans talk about how they want to help the Thals, and the Daleks hear this, and they realize they can use this to their advantage. <laughs> They're weaselly. I love just how cacklingly evil the Daleks are here because they're very explicit with each other. Mm. Let's lure these humans into a false sense of security so we can get the Thals to come in and then take advantage of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's too bad they don't have hands to uh, rub together maniacally. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so now um, one of the Daleks shows up at the cell to take Susan from the prisoners. And he kind of, the Dalek, here the Dalek's not so smart. Because he says, we're going to use Susan so we can help the Thals, which is what you want. <laughs> and when he says that, Ian immediately realizes, wait, how do they know what we want? They must be listening to us. <laughs> and now all of a sudden we are back to the TARDIS. There's a whole group of Thals we haven't seen before because we'd only seen the one guy surrounding it. They're speculating about the dogs since they haven't seen them in 500 years. It turns out they had been on some plateau somewhere for the last 500 years. Apparently, they, like, ran out of food. 
And now they're out searching for a new location. And that's what's brought them out here and how they encountered the TARDIS and how they ran into the city. We find out that it used to be 500 years ago that everything was flipped. The Daleks were teachers and philosophers and the Thals were warriors. Yeah. And now the Thals are very peace-loving people. They're not warriors. And they're speculating about, you know, what are the Daleks now? Because they've seen the city, they think maybe they're kind of warlike because they've created all this stuff and they're very scientific. And apparently scientific and warlike go together. (laughs) But they do think, you know, maybe we could meet these Daleks and we could exchange ideas and trade and, you know, life will be better on the planet. And the Daleks put out a lot of food for them eventually. (laughs) Yeah. Also, the interesting thing here is... Aladon is describing this young human woman he met, Susan, and in kind of glowing terms, well, he has a girlfriend, and she's not happy to be hearing (laughs) about this strange woman that her boyfriend seems to be entranced by. (laughs) Yeah. And she immediately makes it clear that this is not a cool situation. (laughs) Yeah, it's an interesting little wrinkle, though I don't don't think it really ends up going anywhere, but it's, it's fun detail. Right, we do find out a little bit about the politics, and one of the not great things about this story is is that the women aren't treated too well. We only have one speaking woman, Thal, and she's just all jealous and, you know, doesn't understand politics and, yeah. and all that sort of thing, yeah. So Aladon explains that Susan has said she's going to send them a message, and so they'll know it's from her, she's going to sign it with her name. Brilliant idea, I guess. <laughs> and that will that message will tell them what to do next. If it is Susan, then they're okay and good to go. And if it's some other, oh, that (laughs) do the opposite. So now we're back into the city with the Daleks and Susan. (laughs) The Daleks have come up with this idea that Susan needs to write a letter uh, to to the Thals. uh, And so she is writing. and, And this is, to me, again, really weird. Susan, again, is this alien person who's supposed to have been around for a long time and knows all these things. And she was described in the, in the first episode as being brilliant scientifically and, and, and knowing more than her teachers. And she is writing in the most childish handwriting, and she's spelling it out as, as she goes along. Mm-hmm. It's very weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's very large print that she uses. And I was wondering, maybe that's for the benefit of the television technology at the time she wanted something to be at least you could make out the name susan on it you know at the bottom right right oh and and again the the daleks being very smart they when she signs it they immediately say wait you must have told the thals that you were going to sign it this way right (laughs) (laughs) i I wouldn't have picked that up i would have just assumed she was signing it but yeah (laughs) yeah they don't miss a trick well not not till it's really (laughs) <laughs> a bad situation for him. Uh, and then the content of the letter, and the, I found this pretty funny, is that they're having her write down all the wonderful things the Daleks are going to do for the Thals, right? So they're going to help them recultivate the ruined land around the city. Uh, they're going to provide them with lots and lots of food. You know, it's just going to be a big party for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, welcome home, brother. <laughs> <laughs> And then, you know, they waste no time. The minute she's done with the letter, they grab it, 
And then they start treating her like crap and they start pushing her around and all of a sudden their, their, you know, rosy tone disappears. <laughs> it's like, surprise. <laughs> so we're back to the prisoners and, you know, they have figured out from the clues that the Daleks are listening in. So they decide to put on a show <laughs> and they get all set up and Ian is the bad cop and he's talking down the Daleks. And the doctor is the good cop, and he's he's being the big supporter of the Daleks. These are scientific people. We can work with them. Susan is suddenly back. It's not clear to me if, if she was in on the whole plan or not. But I guess she was, because what happens is she jumps on Ian's back. Now, let's, let's go back to the caveman story where she also jumped on someone's back. This seems maybe she likes piggyback, right? So, <laughs> And they have a big fight, and they're running around the room with her on his back, and you're kind of like, what's this all about? And it turns out there's actually a purpose, which is she reaches up to the camera that's installed in the wall and pulls it out of the wall. Yeah. Staged a little conflict for the camera and then used it as a pretense to get her up high enough. Good trick. Right. So this was all a ruse. Then we go back to the dollars who've been watching this on the, on the monitor, and again, not dumb. <laughs> they go, yeah, she was faking that. <laughs> they did this so they could get rid of the camera. <laughs> yeah, and so they debate, you know, should we exterminate these people? And and uh, as you may or may not be aware, a famous phrase with the Daleks is exterminate, exterminate. Oh, yeah. So this is the first time that term is used, although not quite in the way it is in the future. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, they decide, let's not exterminate them. They may still be useful in our future plans. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now that the camera is destroyed, the prisoners debate what to do next. And this is when the doctor figures out that the Daleks have to use the floors so that they can have, so they can use static electricity to get around. Yeah, they make the analogy to uh, bumper cars or dodgems, as they call them. Yeah, that was funny to me. I'd never heard the term dodgems before, and I looked this up a bit. So I guess that is the British version of bumper yeah. cars. You know, and I think the ones at Cedar Point were called dodgems, if I remember right. That's a oh no, Ohio amusement park. Haven't been there in a while. <laughs> <laughs> They realize they have that cloak from Aladon the Thal, and that the cloak is probably insulated against electricity. Um, so they might be able to use that. It works. <laughs> <laughs> but first, we while they're doing whatever they're doing, we go back to the Thals at the TARDIS, and Aladdin and his girlfriend seem to be quarreling. She's not giving up on her problems with with him hanging around with Susan. Susan's letter is brought to them, and yay, the Daleks want to work with them to build a new and safe world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Food has been left in the Dalek building, not suspicious at all. They just need to go pick it up. <laughs> yep. Good deal. Back to the prisoners. A Dalek is bringing in food, and they have this little scheme where Susan and Ian are standing on both sides of the door, so maybe they can do something. They're both trying to also observe so they can find any weaknesses of the Dalek. And yet another indication of the Daleks not being done. As soon as the door opens and the Dalek starts to come in, it sees that Susan and Ian are there, and it's like, get back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not coming in the room until you step back. <laughs> so that was impressive. After the Dalek leaves, you know, the crew debates strategies on how to defeat it based on what they've observed. 
I kind of thought this was interesting for a kid's show because they were sort of showing like, look, we're going to analyze our situation. We're going to find what we can do. And then we're going to make a plan. And I thought that was sort of an interesting process to watch them go through. You don't usually see that in TV shows. Mm -hmm. They debate strategies. And then without explaining why she's doing it, Barbara has an idea and she takes Susan's shoes and starts scraping dirt off of them. Yeah. (laughs) This uh, I enjoyed this because she's got to have a half pound of dirt on her shoes. <laughs> right. And Barbara explains she's making mud. <laughs> <laughs> and then in classic, I remember, uh, again, with Scooby-Doo, right, I learned this principle in fiction, which is if they tell you the plan, then the plan is going to fail because you have to know how it's supposed to work. <laughs> if they don't tell you the plan, it's going to work, right? Because <laughs> they don't want you to know what's going to happen. So they don't tell us the plan. Yeah. But they do decide on a strategy. They set up the room. When the Dalek comes next and the door opens, Ian quickly slides a little metal object under the under the hinge of the door so it won't be able to close. The Dalek doesn't notice this. When the Dalek leaves, the door fails to close and opens back up again. The Dalek comes in to investigate. And this is when Barbara uses her mud. <laughs> she, she slaps it onto the Dalek's eye stalk so that it can't see. And then Ian and the doctor grab the Dalek's limbs and, you know, twist it around fighting with it. Uh, there's a funny moment here where the Dalek pushes Ian up against the wall with the plunger. And the plunger is supposed to be under his chin. But the plunger can't go quite go high enough, so the actor scrunches down to get the uh, plunger under his chin. <laughs> Very obliging. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they manage to disable the Dalek, and Ian starts to remove the head, looks inside, and he's kind of horrified by what he sees. And, and here we have another not great moment for women in this story. So he says... Ian and Barbara, you have to go outside. (laughs) He doesn't want them to see this horrible thing because they won't be able to take it. Yeah. Whatever is inside, Ian and the doctor remove it and cover it with that cloak. So this is the only time they actually use the cloak, so they didn't really need it for electricity. (laughs) And whatever they remove out of of the tank, the dead, dead Dalek body, it's not big. It's probably not any bigger than, say, a full garbage bag. Then Ian gets inside. So it turns out, you know, especially for the Dalek being not being large, somehow there's enough space for a human being. And all of a sudden he has a Dalek voice. So apparently they have a modulator built into the Daleks so that uh, it'll sound like one if you're inside it. Yeah. Although, uh, although it, he, Aside from the slight voice modulation, uh, all, all they really do is talk in a monotone and, uh, uh, I kind of wonder about that because they're not robots, so they don't need to talk in a monotone. They leave. So Ian is now playing a Dalek. They have some plan that we don't know what it is yet. They leave the room and we get what may be the second most famous cliffhanger in Doctor Who history, which is something starts to crawl out from underneath the cloak. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good little effect. It looked to me, I don't I didn't rewind it and watch it multiple times, but it looked to me like a three clawed hand just sticking out there. Yep. Yeah. In reality, it was like a mylar glove or something. Oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, it's re- you can't tell what it is. Uh, it was very mysterious. Mm-hmm. 
We now see the plan that they had, which is that Ian would represent a Dalek, and this is the the classic, you know, escape mm. scenario where he's pretending to take them for interrogation. And in the process, uh, as they go along, he suddenly figures out how to use all the controls inside the Dalek. Yeah. So apparently, the, all the, so it's not like the Dalek was just being moving around. Apparently, that little thing we saw was actually manipulating all these controls. Mm-hmm. Not quite clear how it would have been able to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, as soon as he starts understanding how to operate the controls, he tells everybody, quick, get in front. Which is basically telling them, get in front of this gun that I just now learned how to use. Yeah, sure. What could go wrong? <laughs> They're going forward, and they come into a room where there's another Dalek. So we get to see how is this plan going to play out. Ian says, as a Dalek, he says, oh, I'm taking them to the council. <laughs> now, here's a classic, you know, Doctor Who obsessive question. How would he know that the Daleks had a council? (laughs) But somehow, maybe it was written inside the Dalek. What do I know? The Dalek is a bit suspicious about the prisoners being out and starts to get upset. And Susan suddenly has a weird idea. And she runs between the real Dalek and the Ian Dalek. And so their plungers are there, and she runs between them. So the plungers, one plunger is against her back, but one against her front. And she does this big wink <laughs> to the other yeah. humans. <laughs> yeah. Like, don't and worry it's... about me. You're like, okay, you're now between two Daleks that could crush you or shoot you, but you're just having fun. <laughs> well, I think, I think she was signaling that, well, well, how she instigated it was she, she faked being a, a panicking. Uh, you know, she said, I won't, I won't go any further, you know, and started, you know, simulating a, a fit. And that was the wink was to signal she hadn't actually gone off a rocker, you know, that <laughs> it wasn't the most subtle signal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But again, it, it may have been acting aimed at a, a 12 inch screen, you know, cause right, right. Uh, so the Dalek is convinced opens the door for them. They go into the next room and and the door closes. And here's another amusing, you know, plot convenience thing, which is the doctor goes to this circular device right next to the door and unplugs it so that the door can't be opened again. It's like, wait, where have these devices been all along? (laughs) So all of a sudden, when you need one, there's an unplug the door device. Yeah. Just good fortune. <laughs> <laughs> but the Dalek that let them through, you know, ends up reporting back that he has let them through. And then he's informed, what are you doing? You know, the prisoners weren't supposed to be let out. Yeah. So the alarm is raised. The crew is in this room and they're trying to get Ian out of the Dalek. But he gets stuck. There's some problem. They can't get him out. There's banging on the door. And then, with no time at all, it didn't take them long at all, uh, the Daleks start to use a blowtorch to cut through the door. Yeah. Interesting question about how they could hold a blowtorch. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that the door cutting is is a good effect. It's, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's maybe a thin styrofoam or a plastic, but uh, they're, they're, they're actually melting the material uh, somehow, and uh, it looks good. 
And now the it turns out the floor has been magnetized and Ian is stuck and can't move inside the Dalek. They're going to have to leave him behind because they just can't get him out. Fortunately, there's an elevator in this room. The doctor and Susan and Barbara use the elevator to get away. And this is actually a pretty amazing effect. There is no elevator. This is a totally visual effect where they are going up. Mm. Uh, but it was done as, as CGI, effectively, at a time when they didn't really have CGI. And I think it's uh, amazingly effective. Whatever they did, it's a, it's a, it's a good, uh, good effect. And Ian is then stuck in the room while the Daleks are cutting through the door. In the elevator, Susan is, after having been all clever and on top of things uh, just a moment ago, now she's freaking out in the standard <laughs> Susan way. <laughs> they arrive at some floor and get out. Meanwhile, the Daleks manage to cut through the door. And the first thing they do is... Blow Ian Stalick to pieces. So, and, oh, is this the end of Ian? <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I should mention the, the Dalek numbering system is exposed briefly on the uh, elevator call buttons. Basically, it's Roman numerals, but you use an O instead of a. <laughs> okay, good catch. I didn't notice that at all. And it also, although there are other symbols you see around too on their different things. Oh, yeah. It uh, it also uh, it looks like binary, but it's not. It's Roman numerals. <laughs> uh, so they blow apart the Dalek. We're worried that Ian has been killed, but actually, it's empty. It turns out, somehow, in all of this chaos, the crew had sent the elevator back down. Ian had gotten out. We don't know how he got out. He got into the elevator and he left. <laughs> in, in you know somehow in in all of this, and and we didn't notice that. <laughs> so, uh, but phew, he is he's out. Uh, the Daleks now recall the elevator, but it's too late. He's already gotten out of the elevator and joined the crew. Yeah, the crew looks out a window that's near them, and we have this weird thing where they are looking out an opaque window, so we don't know how they can see through it, because we can see the window and it is opaque. We cannot <laughs> see through it. But Barbara says she saw a man out there running around, and they realize it must be the Thals coming for the food, and they're about to be ambushed. They're, you know, what? who knows what floor they're on, but they try to attract the Thals' attention by banging on the window. <laughs> and then when we see the window from the reverse position where we see them, suddenly it is translucent and we can see through it. So we see them banging on it. So yeah. Actually, they are banging on nothing. It's just air. But <laughs> They try to get out of the room. The door has been magnetized, so the door can't be opened. And the elevator is now coming with the Daleks inside. So they have a scheme. They find a big block of styrofoam. I, I yeah, mean, rock. This is, yeah, I think it. I think it's modern art. <laughs> yeah, I want aesthetic touch in the whole building. Well, one of the fun things about the timing of this show is that a lot of modern materials were brand new at the time, and so they would use them on the assumption that their audience wouldn't know what the material was. And so in this case, it is so clearly styrofoam, but I think styrofoam <laughs> was a new thing. So they go, oh, look, it's a rock. I mean, they didn't even bother to paint it, you know, rock color. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they take this big block of styrofoam and they push it into the elevator shaft and it goes through and disables the elevator. Yeah, that was, I mean, 
that was very out of place in that complex. That uh, whatever the heck it was, that that was definitely a contrivance of the plot. I think. <laughs> right, right. They then manage somehow to force the door open. We go to the Thals who are coming in to get their bounty of food. And some of them are suspicious of the Daleks, but some are not. The leader, you know, kind of the older guy who's who's very much a hippie peacenik. Yeah. <laughs> he says he's going to speak to them peacefully. Everything is going to be fine. He nearly quotes Yoda. Maybe he inspired Yoda. But uh, uh, he says, fear breeds hatred in war. You know, and I could just imagine <laughs> Yoda saying that. So that's the kind of leader he is. <laughs> Well, and totally tangentially, a whole lot of the actors and production crew and everything who worked on shows like this ended up working on Star Wars because it was filmed in in London mm. in these same studios. Oh, um, okay. So totally possible. <laughs> <laughs> but he says, you know, the key is he's unarmed, so everything is going to be fine because the dogs are going to trust him because he is unarmed. <laughs> mm, good plan. <laughs> yep. Now we switch to the Daleks in the room, and I really like this shot because there's a whole bunch of Daleks in the room, and they all are near these little cubby holes, and then they all back up into the cubby holes to hide themselves kind of at the mm -hmm. same time. It's a really nice shot. Oh, yeah. We're back to the—we don't know what's going to happen there. We're back to the crew. They're debating what to do with the—you know, to help the Thals. The doctor, being in his selfish mode— doesn't want to get involved. The rest of the crew wants to help out the Thals. Ian tells everyone else to leave and he'll handle things. Which also, last time in the cavemen, Ian said the doctor was the leader, but now he uh, seems to be back to leading things, so yeah. we don't seem to have fully resolved all that. Uh. Back to the Thals. They enter the room that's supposed to have all the food. Actually, it does have a bunch of food and stuff in the center but they don't know the Daleks are hiding all around the room. Ian is is observing this. The peaceful leader makes his peaceful leadery speech. <laughs> so the Daleks make sure to kill him first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this scene, uh, when I was watching it, it looks like it's a real massacre. At least to me, I got that impression. And it turns out uh, they didn't lose a whole lot of people. But uh, I think it was like two. I think it was the leader yeah. and one other guy. <laughs> yeah. I, and it, we'll see going forward, again, I think there's a whole hangover from World War II thing here, which is really interesting, because we have a lot of pacifism versus needing to defend yourself stuff, which mm -hmm. I think is much more meaningful when you're this close to World War II, right? And when you're in Britain, where oh, sure. they had no choice. They had to defend themselves or get taken over. Right. The uh, Aladon sort of hides in a corner, <laughs> He's supposed to be kind of the brave guy. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, the crew is back at the TARDIS with the Thals who are, who didn't get shot by the Daleks. Mm -hmm. And they have this archive of their history, literally this cylinder with a bunch of tapes and things in it that is the entire 500-year history. I guess they, they carry it around with them. There's no indication that they have machines that would be able to read these tapes. <laughs> yeah, and, and a lot of their history seems to be written on uh, hexagonal tiles, just kind of painting. As a board gamer, I, I approve of that. <laughs> 
turns out this planet is called Skaro, which so that's the first time we hear that name, and that will persist throughout Doctor Who history. They put together these pieces of the map so that the Doctor can see where they are in space, you know, because they, they have kind of a map of the, the local solar system, and he kind of figures out where they must be, what, what the planet's position is. One of the things that stood out to me here, very shallow, the Thals have lots and lots of skin <laughs> showing in <laughs> yeah. their, their costumes. They have these big, big, big holes in their pants. Yeah. Uh, that, that, you know, <laughs> both uh, both sexes have a lot of uh, side legs shown. With the men, it's holes <laughs> going down the side. With the women, it's like a sort of apron that covers the front and back. Right, right. Uh, pretty neat. As some people used to say, you know, you wanted to throw some things into these shows so that the dad who was watching <laughs> the show with their kids would have something to look no, at. Oh, sure. <laughs> Ian and the non-dead Falls <laughs> come back from the city. <laughs> Guess they've learned a lesson. Not quite clear why the Daleks wouldn't have been able to shoot everybody, but... Maybe they ran fast. <laughs> yep. Here again, we get into this debate about pacifism. Ian counsels the Thals that they need to show strength and fight the Daleks. Aladon, who's now the true leader of the tribe because the older guy got killed by the Daleks, insists there can never be any question of them fighting the Daleks. They are peaceful people. And then the doctor announces that he has fully researched Thal and Dalek history. Uh, he shows some early images of the Thals that are pretty funny drawings, uh, with showing them with bows and swords and stuff. So they yeah. used to be warlike. We, and, you know, he's figured out that the Thals and Daleks have kind of switched places. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, the crew decides, you know what? It's time to leave. We're going to get in the TARDIS and leave. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are stuck fighting the Daleks or not fighting the Daleks, whatever you want to do. Yeah. Ian realizes he doesn't have the fluid link because the Daleks took it off of him. Yeah. <laughs> that old fluid link. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, this very, very complex spaceship, but can't go anywhere because of this one little item. And and I get, some people have criticized that, but, you know, you look at the Challenger disaster, the Challenger blew up because of one little yeah, ring, one right? Little so ring, maybe, yeah. it's, <laughs> maybe it's not unrealistic. No. And it's the end of the episode. So we're back to the Daleks, and they're saying that the drugs that they got uh, from the humans have been duplicated. Honestly, I was initially a little confused because I had the impression that the Daleks couldn't use these drugs but it, or didn't think they could use these drugs, and I didn't know why they'd be duplicating them. But on rewatching and and reading through it, it turns out that, yeah, they're, they're thinking these drugs could be helpful to us. Mm -hmm. So they have now duplicated the drugs, and they're starting to distribute them among the Daleks. And meanwhile, they did this weird thing where they review surveillance photos of the crew and the Thals at the TARDIS. So for some reason, they don't have video there, but they do have these very, very indistinct photos mm. uh, where they interpret who, what they're seeing and who they're looking at. Back to the Thals and, and the TARDIS, and the Thals are saying they're not going to fight. No way. And now we get to what I think is one of the most interesting discussions in these early episodes, which is Ian, who's the guy and, you know, the young guy and, and wants to be all manly. He's saying he can't push the Thals into fighting because he couldn't deal with it if, you know, some of them die and they didn't, 
they didn't agree with that, that he doesn't want that on his conscience. Right. And here we have Barbara saying, but you're okay with us dying? <laughs> and that, wow, what a passive aggressive thing. She's literally saying, you need to talk these people into starting a war with the Daleks because the four of us need to leave. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very selfish argument and it's mm -hmm. kind of surprising coming from Barbara. Yeah. Although it does, somebody does make the argument much later on that uh, it was only a matter of time before the Daleks came to attack the Thals. And in fact, they're planning a big attack at the very end, but we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> no, that's true. And it's actually Barbara who said, who, that's part of her argument. You know, you know, they're going to attack them anyway, so we might as well <laughs> inspire them to, to this war. And the doctor agrees with Barbara, which again, it, it, as we see over time, that's very undoctor-like. But <laughs> this doctor, this point in time, <laughs> that's the kind of guy he is. Ian says, look, uh, we can only do this if the Thals actually want to fight without our influence. And then he goes and proceeds to influence them. So I'm not quite sure what the deal is here. But he goes to the Thals, and he starts doing everything he can to manipulate them. So the first thing he does is he picks up the cylinder of archives, and he says, you know what? I'm going to take this to the Daleks, and I'm going to trade it to them, and you would have to stop me. And they say, you know, okay, we're not going to do anything. So that didn't work. <laughs> So then he takes, you know, the one speaking girl, the girlfriend of Aladon, and he says, fine, I'm going to take her to the Daleks. <laughs> I don't know why the Daleks would want her. Aladon suddenly gets an injection of, of manliness and he decks Ian. Yeah. <laughs> he punches him. <laughs> it was a clever little strategy, I thought, on Ian's part. Right, and Ian says, so there is something you'll fight for. <laughs> so he's done his little psychological manipulation to the point where he could get someone to pop off and then use that as an excuse to start a war. <laughs> so, so because he defended his girlfriend, he must now be willing to go into war. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and we'll come back to that later. There's some more that comes out of this that, that I think is really interesting. But now we're back to the Daleks. And this, uh, I love this. It's it's really strange. You wouldn't expect it, especially in a kid's show. Mm -hmm. We have a Dalek. We don't know who it is. He is out of control. He's spinning around. He doesn't know what's going on. He's asking for help, which is very un-Dalek-like. Right. He's in Section 3. <laughs> and Section 3 were the first one to get the drugs. They decided to give each section the drugs one at a time for efficiency. Hmm. All of a sudden, none of the Daleks in Section 3 can work. They're all sick. Well, a side point here. <laughs> we see this whole room of Daleks, and most of the Daleks in the room are printed stand-ups. <laughs> hmm. You know, I, I did not catch that. I, uh, well, okay, if you're not, you know, if you're, that's good, good for them. I, mean, I will guarantee if you go back and watch, you'll be like, oh, my God, I can't believe that <laughs> these were all just printouts. Because they only had about five functional Daleks. So whenever right. they wanted to show more than five, they just had these printouts. Uh. What they figure out here is, oh, wait, this radiation drug hurts us. We have now mutated so much that radiation drugs that are good for humans hurt the Daleks. All right. And they realize now that they have become standardized to radiation. And they're actually dependent on it now. 
Yeah, they need it. So this turns into the whole idea of, oh, what we need to do, you know, this all the radiation occurred because they had let off a neutron bomb in this war 500 years ago. And so now they realize what we have to do is release another neutron bomb so that the rest of the, the world will be something we can go out into, right? And yeah. we'll, we'll destroy all the thals and, and everything in the process. We're back to the thals. They're debating pacifism. And this is the other part I love that came out of he, the um, Aladon punching Ian, which is he and the girlfriend are talking on their own. Are you angry with yourself for striking the young man? No, I, I knew he was trying to make me do it. But I still couldn't stop myself. Do you despise me for hitting him? If you hadn't fought him, I think I would have hated you. And she says, if you hadn't fought him, I think I would have hated you. Yeah, I think that's pretty good psychology there. <laughs> I mean, as far as the writing, you know, the who, whoever wrote that was perceptive, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, let's face it, women don't like a wimp you know, for a mate <laughs> yeah. usually. And so the result is Aladdin saying, what's more important, to fight and live or to die without fighting? So Ian's manipulations have worked. <laughs> Aladdin is ready to go to war. <laughs> We're back to the Daleks. And again, really interesting. We have a shot from the viewpoint of a Dalek eye stock. So it's like moving all over the place. We have this little mm -hmm. circle of vision. Very experimental for the time mm -hmm. <laughs> for a kid's show. And it's been, we, we now find out all Daleks in Section 3 have now died. Yeah. Um, which is you have a bit of a tragedy. <laughs> pretty pretty grim thing for the for the children. <laughs> yep. And I love this statement. It's just again so on the nose. The evil cackling guy is just putting it out there. It says We do not have to adapt to the environment. We will change the environment to suit us. <laughs> Back, you know, we're going back and forth here. So back to the Thals. Aladon is is talking to his people. Says there is no indignity in being afraid to die, but there is a terrible shame in being afraid to live. If we do not help the crew, it will be the same as if we had killed them ourselves. <laughs> so Ian has manipulated him into this. He now manipulates the rest of the group, and people agree to join and and do this war thing. Yeah. Meanwhile, we're back to the Daleks. They're using their different technology to figure out the Thal movements and try to figure out what's going on out there. And they have uh, started treating the Daleks that they gave the radiation drugs to. They've now started treating those Daleks by giving them radiation. And all the Daleks in Section 2 are recovering thanks to this radiation. So, yay, yeah. good news. Yeah. <laughs> they said they lost one who had a real serious case, but... Other than that, they all made it through, thanks to radiation. <laughs> yep. So now that they are absolutely sure that radiation is the right thing for Daleks, they start preparing for another neutron bomb. And back to the Thals again. They had identified that there were some mountains and swamps on the other side of the city that are natural barriers, and they feel the Daleks will never expect an attack from that direction. So, of course, the crew and the Thals have trudged over to there. And thankfully, once again, they do not put us through the trudging process. <laughs> they yeah. just 
show them arriving. It's maybe worth mentioning that the reason the swamp was such a good natural barrier is because it's full of man-eating monsters. Yeah, yeah, all sorts of mutated things out there. One of the things that really stuck out to me, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if some of these people were involved in Star Wars, because the look of the both the jungle and the swamp mm. is very similar to Empire Strikes Back. And Dagobah, I was thinking that very yeah. thing. Yeah. And the swamp itself, I mean, it steams and it bubbles. It's a, it's a good little effect. Yeah, and you think about it, they're on a set, you know, in a very small and primitive set, so they, they put a lot of effort into that. It's, it's impressive. So Ian kneels down and washes his face in this bubbling swamp. And I'm thinking, <laughs> Ick, I, I don't think that would have been my choice. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of dubious. <laughs> <laughs> While he's doing this, a creepy slime monster with glowing mm. eyes rises out of the swamp. Yeah, that, that is, I'd see, I think that's a cool-looking monster. My, that that yep, was my yeah, opinion. Absolutely. And it's kind of a... It could almost be like a Cthulhu head, uh, you know, yeah, with uh, tentacles everywhere, and uh, uh, real, real nice effect. I want to, I want to see Swamp Monster returns. <laughs> and I think one of the reasons it was good is because it wasn't a humanoid, right? It, it was some, like you say, very Cthulhu esque. It was very bizarre mm -hmm. and and not something you expected. Ian runs away, which is at least a good response. <laughs> and the next, so next morning. They travel along and they see these big pipes going from the water into the side of a mountain. And they realize this is what they've been looking for. This is where the Daleks run water from the lake into the city. Right. And so they hope to find then an entrance they can go through to get into the city. Before we go further, I want to mention one thing from those scenes we just talked about. Uh, at one point... Uh, Ian bravely defends Barbara from a caterpillar chewing on a twig. <laughs> it's just like a little 10-second thing. You know, they, they start, and then uh, you see this really close-up shot of a caterpillar chewing on a twig. And then it zooms back out, and uh, you see Ian just swat something around his knees and move on. <laughs> they really overplayed that caterpillar. <laughs> yeah, especially after that creepy swamp monster. Right? <laughs> uh, now we get to another interesting special effect. There's a random fall dude who is at the edge of the water. They want to create a raft so that they can get to where they need to go. And as part of creating the raft, what they want, I guess, is they want water bags that I assume they're going to put under the raft or something. So we, so we have this guy and he's got a bunch of these water bags that he's filling up at the edge of the swamp and something starts coming up in the water and we get another kind of split screen shot where there's a whirlpool. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, again, really good looking and, and really impressive yeah. special effects shot. Yeah. I thought it was pretty good. Uh, we don't know what's causing the whirlpool. The dude screams and end of episode. So our next episode is the ordeal. Now, this is what I call the chasm jumping episode. You've heard me complain <laughs> about this before. Yeah. And I'm going to say <laughs> the title of this episode is completely appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> 
because uh, it's it's an ordeal for us viewers. <laughs> yeah, it, I wouldn't say that it's the whole episode. It's really right. just a few minutes of the episode, but they they drag on. <laughs> and although they do actually have a payoff, but we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we start out, and the dude who was filling water bags is gone, presumably eaten. <laughs> we don't know what's we don't know what's happened to him. We don't know what kind of monster would create this huge whirlpool. Uh, Susan, the doctor, and a couple of Thals are using binoculars. And actually, when I say binoculars, and this is something people do make fun of the show for this episode for, it's not really binoculars. It's it's these little things stuck on eyeglasses. <laughs> I didn't even catch that. <laughs> you can't adjust them, you know, anyway. But um, they are figuring out an approach into the city. You know, they're, they're, rec- uh, they're doing recon. And the doctor realizes what they need to do is they need to knock out the Daleks' electronic surveillance. You know, we don't know how they're going to do that, but that's his idea. Now we're back to the Daleks, and they get a disappointing report. (laughs) As is the case when you're in management and you have engineers working for you, and the engineers report it's going to take 23 days to construct a neutron bomb (laughs) that will take out 500 square miles. Management says, is that the shortest time? <laughs> and the answer is yes. Like, ah, this isn't going to work. We are not. We can't sit around here for 23 days <laughs> before we can radiate this place. So instead, they come up with a plan to use their nuclear reactors. They're going to overload them or something in order to put radiation into the atmosphere in the next day or two. <laughs> uh, but I love that even the Daleks are stuck with, you know, what your people can do, right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, now we get to to the start of where I think things go off the rails a bit, which is Barbara and Aladon are exploring a cave. They find a passageway. I do like the fact that they're alone, and Barbara says something about Ian, and Aladon says, do you always do what Ian says? So, you know, he's kind of <laughs> putting a little uh, jab in there, maybe trying to make some space for himself. <laughs> Aladon climbs through a passageway while Barbara is holding a rope attached to him. And this is the kind of action we're just going to get in this episode. People <laughs> attach the ropes going through passageways. <laughs> Barbara trips. Aladon falls. Boy, this could be serious. Oh, he falls about two inches. <laughs> uh, lands on a floor. Oh, this is great. He sees all sorts of caverns around him. So he's like, this is what we're looking for. We can probably find a way from here into the city. Ian and the rest of the Thals show up, uh, back to the Daleks and their radar scopes, which is a new term, kind of fun. Um, their radar scopes are showing lots of activity, but they can't really see what's going on. And that's because, as we see, based on this doctor's suggestion that they knock out the surveillance, there are a number of Thals outside the city with large metal plates where they're redirecting sunlight <laughs> into the city uh, to screw up the surveillance. Uh, the doctor, Susan, and one of the Thals get into the city, and the doctor, is, as usual, is is very self-congratulatory about this. You know, it looks like my plan worked. <laughs> oh, yeah, he just can't, uh, can't stop bloating. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the caves. Barbara, Ian, and the Thals are trudging through the caves. And this is something that really uh, made me think of something. And in some reading, I'm not the first to think of it. This was a very Lord of the Rings moment. If you think back to the swamp and then this, I mean, these and and the Lord of the Rings was a big deal at the time. It was just coming out mm-hmm. or it was relatively recent. 
And so we have these these plot points here that are very similar, and I, I suspect it's not a coincidence. Oh, here. yeah, that makes sense. And this, I think we're at the point where I, I have to mention one of my favorite things in the episode. At 21 minutes and 40 seconds, give or take <laughs> a second, uh, this is on BritBox, Barbara grabs the wall and breaks off a piece of styrofoam. <laughs> you can... You can hear it break, and then you just see a, a big white spot on the wall for the rest of that scene. <laughs> so it's very enjoyable. Well, you know, this is a uh, far future, far flung cave. Who knows what it's made of? <laughs> <laughs> we get to something, and uh, I, I love this kind of thing. I, I love it when these stories, you know, have people acting very human. One of the Thals gets really paranoid and stressed out, and he wants to go back. And he tries to talk the other guy. I think it's Aladdin or Gallatin. I, I honestly, these blonde dudes, I, I can't keep track of them. <laughs> Ant, Antilus. Antilus is the brother who's scared. Okay. Uh, and I think it's Gallat as he's trying to talk into going back with him. Yeah. And he says, listen, they're going to die anyway. So he's talking about Ian and company, you know, they're all going to die anyway. Let's just go back and tell everybody that the Daleks killed them. <laughs> uh, and I thought, you know, okay, great. This is a very human moment. That's a good thing to represent. Yeah. Galatus and him fight because Galatus doesn't want to let him do this. And then maybe triggered by their fight, there's a rock slide. And that rock slide is prevents them from going back. So yeah. no, you got to go forward. No choice. <laughs> and it also knocks him in the head. Antilus it knocks in the head with uh, one of the falling rocks. Although that ends up not going anywhere. <laughs> right. Back to the Daleks and the radar scopes are telling them that stuff is going on in section 15. So I love if you're paying attention, we're getting a whole map here, right? All the Daleks in section three died. The Daleks in section two were cured. <laughs> and now the falls are coming into section 15. So we're, we're figuring all this out. <laughs> uh, and they decide they will track section 15 by vibration and take the falls by surprise. Okay. <laughs> Uh, back to the doctor and company. Now, another plot point I love. They find some power junction just on a building somewhere right? yeah. <laughs> with a big wire coming out of it. And the doctor smashes it all up. And all of a sudden, he has disabled all of the Dalek systems. Like, that was a really smart idea. Just put, you know, key <laughs> electronic stuff outside a building so anyone can smash it up and, <laughs> and shut everything down. <laughs> And I think maybe this is the scene where I where I observed he really really gloated about it afterwards yeah. in the to his detriment. <laughs> right. Their comeuppance is here because all of a sudden the doctor and Susan are surrounded by Daleks yeah. who you know found them presumably by vibration. <laughs> uh, back to the cave again. And Ian and Galatus find the chasm. So here we get to my uh, yeah. favorite part of the episode. We're all going <laughs> to jump over the chasm. Yeah. <laughs> and Ian jumps first, jumps right to a sheer rock wall that somehow he just manages to grab onto and not, yeah. not fall. He has a rope with him. Then Galatus jumps across. And then there's all sorts of rope stuff and everything. Yeah. And and for this, when they're shooting people jumping across the chasm, they're actually jumping across, you know, some undefined width. I don't think it can be more than two feet wide. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
back to the Daleks. The Doctor and Susan are sitting on the floor, surrounded by Daleks. The Daleks are debating whether they should exterminate the Thals so the Daleks can live. Although, you know, they've kind of already made that choice. <laughs> uh, I guess they decide to have a little more discussion about it. <laughs> okay, so back to the caves. Barbara jumps across into the arms of Ian, which is appropriate. You know, we have this ongoing will they, won't they question with Ian and Barbara. Now we manage to have, like, I don't know, two minutes of padding while Barbara crawls around the rocks. <laughs> we just watch her do this for, like, two yeah, minutes. Yeah, she, she tries to go around the corner with her back to the wall, and he spends half a minute saying, no, turn around and you know, keep your front to the wall. <laughs> yeah. Exciting stuff. Oh, yeah. Now we have the the guy who wanted to leave is the last guy. Antilus, yep. Antilus, yeah. He got his name down. <laughs> uh they they, you know, throw the rope to him. He's freaked out. He can't do it. It's it's just too stressful. But he ties the rope around himself. He jumps, and rather than going into the arms of Ian like Barbara did, he bounces <laughs> off of Ian. <laughs> yeah. And I actually rewound this a couple times, and it looks to me almost like Ian is pushing him. <laughs> I, I, that may just be my own misconception, but it does look kind of <laughs> like it to me. Probably the actor, you know, making this work, right? Yeah. So now he falls and he's hanging over the cliff on a rope tied to Ian. And it's the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we just, des- the way we describe it makes it sound more exciting than <laughs> <laughs> You may be right, yeah. Because the basically the last five or ten minutes of this episode is just people giving each other ropes, you know, clinging to rocks, <laughs> jumping two feet. Yeah, yeah, and it's a uh, pretty dimly lit too, so you don't even have you know a lot of visual stimulation in there. Right, but thinking about the episode as a whole, what do you think? Should people watch this one? Um, this one, I'd give the thumbs down. I mean, I mean, <laughs> you know, I I would always advocate. Or not, maybe not always, but generally advocate if you have the time and the desire, you know, go ahead and watch the whole thing and, you know, make your own opinion. Yeah. But, but for people who are, you know, looking to trim away the fat, you know, the, this one <laughs> I'd say is skippable. Yep. Yep. When we were first planning all this, I didn't want us to watch most of these episodes before we decided that you were. Willing to put yourself through <laughs> the the ordeal um, of of episodes that might not be the greatest, and honestly, it comes down to this episode. If you took this out, I I think that this would be an overall story that that I would be fine with recommending. Mm. And I think it's just one where people kind of run into a wall. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we are almost there. One more episode: the rescue. <laughs> And we're back to uh, the guy you're, you know, the name of. <laughs> oh, Antilus. Yeah. Hanging <laughs> at the end of a row. I just can't get the name down. And, and again, everything about the Thals, I, I can't remember their names. I can't tell them apart. I yeah. <laughs> I, I, I happen to have it written down in front of me. <laughs> That's the only oh, way you're cheating. I know. <laughs> so Antilus is literally at the end of his rope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's hanging from a rope uh, over the side of a cliff, and uh, I, you know, I don't know. Is he being a coward? Is he being brave? He cuts the rope and falls to his death. Yeah, I think, uh, I think probably he was trying to save uh, save Ian because Ian was having a bad time of it, and you could hear his fingers squeaking on the styrofoam. 
<laughs> right. He was <laughs> he was tied to Ian, so he was saving Ian. So yeah, I, I think you're right. They were probably trying to redeem him after his cowardice yeah. before this. I mean, I will say, even though this is really dark, I mean, here's a guy deciding to commit suicide to save someone. I actually think this kind of thing is good for a kid's show. Like, oh, sure. You should have some kids being introduced to some of the darker side of things. And I, and I think it's not a good thing that we try to protect kids from everything these days. <laughs> That's my, my stand. <laughs> I 100% agree. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we're back to the doctor and Susan in the city being held by the Daleks as they make their plans. And the doctor decides to try and distract them. So he says, look, I've got this TARDIS thing that travels in time and space. I think he, there, there's a lot of debate because technically, if you try to make the whole Doctor Who history work, the timing never works out, right, of when you would have known about this or that. So technically, given later stories, the Doctor should already know about the Daleks. Hmm. But to me, it is clear that he does not know about the Daleks here because he offers to trade them the TARDIS technology for their lives. Hmm. And if he truly understood the impact the Daleks would have on the universe, there's no way he would have made this offer. <laughs> hmm. Although he could have made the offer expecting that between then and the time that they study the machine, the, something brilliant will happen and save them all. Always a possibility. <laughs> uh, but and, and, you know, we're stuck with deciding for ourselves, you know, did he already know who they were? Did he not? Did, mm. Was he making a sincere offer? You know, we don't, we don't have any way to know. Mm. The Daleks first are like, there's no way your kind of creature could build this sort of thing, right? <laughs> don't lie to us. But once they believe in it, then they're like, ah, we don't need you. We'll just reverse engineer it and do it ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> didn't work well. Didn't, didn't go the way he wanted. <laughs> uh, so they're about to start, you know, release the radiation poisoning. Well, they start a, a countdown. Which <laughs> they start from 100, and, and you might think that once in a while we'll check back in on this countdown. No, no, no. <laughs> they do every single number of this countdown. I think they get to like three or something, and I, and I uh, heard in an interview that they were supposed to go all the way to one, but the timing in the episode was off, so the producers had to tell the people doing the countdown to stop because they needed to, to move forward. So I just found that very funny. It, oh, it, yeah. It's a bit tedious, but also humorous. Yeah. And I, I laughed the first time, you know, I watched the episode a couple of times. And the first time when they said 100, I laughed. It's like, that's a ridiculously long countdown. While the countdown is occurring, all of a sudden the Thals and the humans invade. And this is a little exciting, like uh, one or two of them rappel down on ropes. I don't know how they managed to, to do that. Mm -hmm. It's very kind of Mission Impossible here. Doors start shutting and humans get trapped under them or, or Thals get trapped under them and, and killed. Um, you know, we have the classic Dalek shooting, which we saw earlier when they paralyzed Ian, where everything goes into negative whenever they shoot, which is a pretty good effect. So we have this fight going on. We have counting down from 100. Barbara comes out of nowhere with a big rock. Now, I, I don't know where in a room in, the, in a city she, she found a big rock. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in that elevator shift. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, throws it at a Dalek. You know, the humans get clever. They do sort of an all-out assault. 
And the key to this war, I mean, technically, there's no way the humans can win, right? I mean, they don't really even have weapons. They don't have guns. They don't have anything. And, and the Daleks have guns. But the weakness of the Daleks is electricity, right? So yeah. they're bumper cars. <laughs> yeah, they are bumper cars. Dodgems. <laughs> the electricity gets turned off and they are useless. So as soon as that happens, um, they just get tossed around like dolls and it's all over. Mm-hmm. Somebody says, uh, pr- uh, probably Aladon, the final war, 500 years of destruction end in this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we get, a, I think, a, a pretty impressive shot. And, and I will say if I, well, it's not a, that impressive for an adult. If I was a kid, I would have found it pretty epic because you kind of pull back and you see every Dalek they've got, you know, on its side, dead. And there is kind of an epic sense of the end of a war here. Uh. The funny thing is the doctor is unimpressed. He's just like ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Daleks defeated. Our heroes decide to leave immediately. They're going to allow the Thralls to build a whole new world. Hmm. And spoiler in the future, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> We'll find out long, long in the future. We'll find out more about about all that. <laughs> so our concluding thoughts here, last episode, before we get to your determination, what are your kind of overall thoughts on the story and anything in the episodes that we didn't cover? Um, it's uh it, it it's fun. I mean, the whole story arc has been fun. I I enjoyed it all. No, I'm glad I watched all the episodes. There was one thing I noticed at the end of the episode, um, when they get the TARDIS working, it it makes this horrible ratcheting sound when it's getting ready to vanish. I finally figured out what that sound reminds me of. I think I figured it out. I think it sounds a lot like when you're trying to pull start a lawnmower and it's not it's not taking, you know, and you just keep pulling <laughs> that cord over and over again. That's what it reminds me of. Yeah, I think for me, from the from the Doctor Who obsessive viewpoint, it's both incredibly important for really making the series possible and for introducing the Daleks who were so crucial over time. But I'm still going to say it's not what I would consider to be the first true Doctor Who episode mm-hmm. in that because the acting and the approach to the Thals to me was was deficient and later on not too you know long down the road here we'll have an episode where i think it's much better done where where it's much better acted and you get to see how it works when when everything is really functioning so mm-hmm. i'm impressed by the design both of the city and the daleks and i think there's a lot of interesting stuff in there but in terms of, you know, would I really sit one of my loved ones down and say, you got to watch this? Mm-hmm. I, I don't think so. <laughs> Not yeah. as a starting point, anyway. Yeah, that's uh, that's fair. I, I think uh, my opinion would be, for, for people who just want the abridged version, I'd say watch the first one, which is episode five, uh, the very middle one, episode eight, <laughs> and the last one, episode 11. Because episode eight has a lot of, Neat stuff with the, uh, you know, escaping from the facility and so forth. Uh, I'd, I'd say the first, the very middle, and the last would be my recommendation for the people who want the, <laughs> the short trip. Once you've gotten interested in Doctor Who, maybe come back to this and watch it. Because mm-hmm. it'll, you know, you can put up with some of the less ideal stuff uh, once you're once you're engaged. Yeah. 
Okay, so we have another one where it's kind of half worth watching. <laughs> watch mm. watch every third episode or something. Yeah. Like <laughs> okay, well, next up, we'll be covering a really interesting departure from this. It is the two-episode filler because when they were planning this, they didn't know if they would be renewed, but they were obligated to complete the season. So they quickly wrote a two-episode story to fit in at the end, just in case they weren't renewed. Now, they did end up getting renewed, but but they did use that story. It's very different. I'll be very curious to see what you think of it. Mm -hmm. It is The Edge of Destruction. So that will be next time. 